What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And welcome to the Monday episode of the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On the pod today, we bring you transfer developments in Madrid as Real looks set to move for a player that was very much a Manchester United target. Is Gonzalo Higuain the man to ease Maurizio Sarri's Chelsea woes? With the pair having enjoyed success together at Napoli, we look at the chances of them recreating the magic at Stamford Bridge and ask what the signing will mean for shot-shy Spaniard Alvaro Morata. Jose Mourinho gave a fascinating insight into his career as a manager at the weekend with an extensive interview that shed light on a number of major talking points. We analyse his comments and ask what's next for the former United gaffer. And we round up the weekend's action and decide our heroes and villains. Okay, before we start, it's a big week for us at the transfer window. You may have noticed we are in your ears on a Monday instead of our regular slot on a Tuesday. This is because from today we are moving to three, yes, three podcasts per week. Every Monday, Wednesday and Friday we'll be coming to you with all the best transfer news and analysis. I don't know about you boys, but I'm excited. Sensational, I think, development for us. Um, very pleased. I think we've had uh, great listener feedback, Johnny. Um, a lot of time people saying we should be doing more and not less. And uh, in that case, listen, if the public want it, then we're going to give it to them. Yeah, exciting. Doing it um, three times a week for for you guys. Um, as Ian says, we've had a lot of requests for more podcasts um, and uh, more content more subjects discussed on on the transfer window so let us know what you'd like to hear about and uh, and we'll try and get them into the to the the three episodes a week we're doing from now on i suppose the big question uh, not for me because i'm a young man but for you boys at uh, your more advanced stage in life is doing it three times a week going to be quite challenging physically personally i've never had any problem doing it three times a week johnny um so i'll be fine and i would like to also invite uh it's important we want your feedback uh, from our audience we want your um, questions for uh, us as um, the broadcasters um, so that we can involve you more as well um, our Wednesday podcast uh, will be uh, detailing questions from you guys as well so please get your questions in via Twitter at Transfer Podcast and the usual addresses for us three boys I only talk about football statistics I don't do frequencies of other, other subjects <laughs> <laughs> The typical droll Dr. Castles has spoken. Okay, well, we've got some weighty topics to get our teeth into this week. But before we start, we are the Transfer Window Podcast and we always like to start with some transfer news. Ian, you've got some on Eder Militao. Absolutely, Johnny. So following on from Duncan's excellent reporting regarding uh, Manchester United's interest in Eder Militao uh, from Porto, the central defender, um, nothing has happened, interestingly, with regards to Manchester United and uh, in terms of developing or progressing that deal. Uh, and having spoken to some um, sources at Real Madrid, um, I am told that they have um, a informal agreement 
with the player to transfer in the summer window uh, to the Spanish capital and pair up with Rafael Varane as the sort of future central defensive partnership um, at the Santiago Bernabeu. So um, unless there's a dramatic change of mind, then I think we'll be seeing uh, Militao uh, in Real Madrid colours rather in uh, Manchester United's. Um, yeah, just to add to that, Ian, the, the player's agent has said that he won't be moving in January um, and that a move to Madrid is possible in the summer. Um, I think uh, I think we should we should pay attention to this as um, Jose Mourinho was the man who proposed Militão um, as an alternative target to Koulibaly if uh, United weren't prepared to put down the, the big transfer fee required to, to take the Senegalese defender from Napoli. Um, and, of course, um, Real Madrid are considering um, bringing Jose Mourinho back to Real Madrid uh, as a replacement for Santiago Solari. So um, that might not be unconnected. As ever, Johnny, salacious and informed, Mr Castles. <laughs> Okay, so Chelsea were defeated 2-0 by Arsenal at the weekend there and Maurizio Sarri is not only under pressure, but he's looking for a new striker with Gonzalo Higuain very close, apparently, to signing for the club. He's also looking to move on Alvaro Morata, who's now been with the club for 18 months and was the record signing before they signed Kepa. These two strikers looking to switch places... Duncan, what's the situation there? Do you think this is a move that will happen? I think it will happen. And I think the reason it will happen is is the most interesting thing here. You've got two of the most prominent strikers in world football. In fact, um, two players who were the subject of huge transfers in uh, 2016. Higuain's case, 90 million euros to Juventus. Um, And in as recently as 2017, Alvaro Morata uh, from Real Madrid to Chelsea for an initial 65 million euros and, and 15 million in uh, performance-related bonuses, which you'd assume most of haven't been triggered. Both of them shifting because a number of coaches, we're not just two, talking two coaches here, we're talking three coaches, don't want them in their teams anymore. So Sari doesn't want Morata, desperate to shift them out. Max Allegri um, has got rid of Higuain in the last summer because he'd had enough of him. Um, And he's now been with Gennaro Gattuso at Milan for six months. And Gattuso also wants him out. In fact, left him out of the squad uh, for the uh, Monday evening's uh, game against Genoa and announced that uh, yesterday and the reasons why he was leaving him out because he didn't feel he was mentally prepared to play and it would be a bad idea to have him in the team. So you've got you know, three coaches wanting to shift these players on and Sari in the middle prepared to take Higuain, who he worked with at Napoli. Um, and it's not just the, the coaches that are uh, trying to shift them out, it's also the clubs. So Juventus, I'm told, are happy to let um, Higuain go to Chelsea uh, for no additional fee. They're not complicating the move. They loaned Higuain to Milan for 18 million euros with an option to buy at 36 million. And they're allowed to let those terms roll on uh, for Chelsea. Um, And Chelsea are happy to shift Morata to Atletico for a loan fee and an option to buy 
um, which has yet to be established, but I suspect will be for a similar amount. They'll try to get a similar amount on that option to buy as they paid for him, at least the, the initial fee. So you've got this extraordinary situation of two top strikers um, basically being surplus to requirements, um, both of them themselves wanting to leave because they're unhappy with their situations. Morata wants out of London, he wants out of Chelsea, doesn't want to be playing for Sarri anymore. Higuain that has not enjoyed his treatment at Milan. I'm told he, when he moved to Milan, he was expecting to basically be an automatic starter in the team. That didn't happen. Um, and the club started placing pressure on him um, both internally and externally with, um, for example, the, the director of football at Milan um, was quote, Leonardo was quoted recently saying that um, Higuain had to pedal, basically had to work harder if he expected um, to be a starter, a, a, an automatic starter for Milan. So he's upset with that and wants a chance to go and work for a coach who he does have trust in, who he did play extremely well for for several seasons at Napoli, as a chance to um, maybe not resurrect his career, but get himself back in a position where he's receiving plaudits rather than brickbats for a change. Um, the other thing I, I find interesting is if, if you go back and look, um, actually the first summer of the transfer window, we talked a lot about when Morata moved to Chelsea, um, that that summer there was a shortage of, of quality strikers on the market and you had Manchester United and Chelsea competing for Morata and Romelu Lukaku. And we said several times that um, Mourinho in particular was, was having to shop for strikers that in an ideal world he wouldn't have signed, that there wasn't the best, um, the best of the best on the market available to buy at that time yet the clubs were going to have to put down you know, very large transfer fees to sign either of them. And I think it's, it's telling that Chelsea invested so heavily in Morata at that time, and here we are 18 months later and these surplus requirements, um, essentially for the second coach, Conte wasn't particularly happy with him either and about to be moved out. And if you look at Lukaku at Manchester United... He has lost his place and is, is on the bench behind Marcus Rashford there. So I, I guess that's a, it's a warning for clubs um, that if you go shopping for a particular type of player and you buy someone you believe is not ideal for you, but the best you can get on the market at the time, there could be repercussions down the line. I think the other fact, Duncan, that you know, clubs bemoan, and it's certainly true, historically is that everyone wants to buy goals in January because whether you're trying to stay up or whether you're trying to compete for a championship or Champions League or any trophy, um, goals are, you know, obviously at a premium. But it's the worst window ever to try and buy anyone, never mind a striker. Um, and what we're seeing is people settling for what effectively is second or third, I wouldn't say rate, but second or third, third choice. Um, you don't get, the best players don't come in the market in January. Um, or very rarely do. Uh, Chelsea were burned very, very badly by the Fernando Tran uh, Torres transfer for £50 million, which happened in the January window. Higuain is a cheap um, <clears throat> solution by uh, comparison to Torres, but he's not cheap in wages. And um, moving Morata out, who currently, with bonuses, earns around uh, £200,000 per week, 
will make way on, on the wage bill for um, for Higuain to come in. But again, <clears throat> when you look at the way Chelsea played against Arsenal last weekend and the lack of penetration, the lack of goal chances, the lack of, to me, it looked like a very kind of, um, uh, very lackadaisical performance. It was, you know, started afterwards, I'm finding it difficult to motivate these players, which in itself was a very damning and public um, way to, uh, to criticise. And one that he may regret because um, we saw what effectively player power at Chelsea has done to coaches previously. And while a lot of those powerful players, uh, historically like Drogba, Lampard, Terry, etc., have now gone, <clears throat> it was um, Aidan Hazard and others who um, were kind of uh, very much dispirited by Jose Mourinho's um, third season in charge uh, in the second spell at Chelsea and effectively helped get him sacked. So, Sarri's treading a very fine line. We mentioned it last week's podcast. I think um, to go on the attack, you know, especially publicly, is a risk. Um, bringing Higuain in um, <clears throat> is, is not so much of a risk because he's a proven striker. Is that the case, though, Ian? Because he is 31 now. He's been on a kind of downward spiral in the last couple of seasons. There's only eight goals in 22 games. And I, I know it's a poor Milan side, and you can use that one way or the other because you can say well he's still scoring even though he's on a poor side or you could also you could spin it the other way uh, and say well he should, he should be scoring more goals than that oh, Johnny <clears throat> it's a gamble no, no doubt about that for all the reasons you've just stated and the stats that you've um, you've quoted but for Sarri he obviously got the best out of Higuain at Napoli they came very close to winning the title um over two years when uh, Higuain was there, which obviously resulted in his um, record move at the time to Juventus before Cristiano Ronaldo joined. So for Sarri, the gamble, he will feel in his mind is less for him. But I'd say, yes, it is for the club, it is for Chelsea, but it's a loan. So th- there is a, you know, an option to buy, but at 31, well, you know. And I think as Duncan referred to when both United and Chelsea were, were, were trying to buy a top-class striker, there just weren't that many around. And you look at the way football has changed um, philosophy in the last maybe sort of decade and much more prevalent of, of the false nine of of strikers who are um, less uh, kind of um, traditionally built, i.e. The, the larger frame, more physical, etc., etc. So, I mean, what does Sari want from Higuain? Well, all he wants basically is goals. And, and that was absolutely obvious on uh, Saturday evening's match against Arsenal. They had no goal for it whatsoever, despite having three very attacking players uh, in a 4-3-3 formation. So they want Higuain to lead the line and play as a point of his attack. And Higuain, historically anyway, maybe not in the last six months, um, will convert chances when, when those chances are made. So it's, it's, it's a gamble on both sides. But um, I think it's interesting that you know Chelsea... As big a club as they are, a club who spent so much money um, in Roman Abramovich's time, um, is look at, are looking at a 31-year-old uh, loan f- transfer to solve the striking problems, um, whereas in the past they've just gone out and tried to buy the best striker available. I think it's look, there is a big cost in terms of the salary. Um, I'm told that Iguain has paid 10 million euros net a season. Um, including about two, two and a half million of bonuses at Juventus and understand Chelsea will have to pick up all of that um, salary when they take him on, on board. I think it's 
what you see here is Sari putting a lot of eggs in one basket. Um, as, as Ian said, he was extremely aggressive in attacking his players at the weekend. Um, when you go out publicly, um, when you specifically take um, a translator with you to ensure that your message, and, and you speak in Italian, uh, so you can ensure that your message is properly conveyed and you start talking about uh, the lack of ferocity, um, the lack of determination, lack of motivation, saying that the group of players are extremely difficult to motivate, um, say that the defeat had nothing to do with tactics. Um, uh, the, the reason for the defeat was because of, essentially because of the implementation of the players. Um, in a period where his tactical approach has been identified um, not just by commentators like ourselves um, and criticised, but identified by opponents. Uh, and, you know, you've got uh, Jose Mourinho doing match analysis in Qatar on that game. And one of the, one of the interesting things he said was um, Chelsea aren't an easy team to play against, but they are a very easy team to analyse. And what he's saying there is they play in a very predictable fashion. Um, one that, that Arsenal obviously identified um, by using Aaron Ramsey to not quite man-mark Jorginho, but to always be in the space Jorginho played in. So we've cut off that, that supply route, which is absolutely central to Sarri's game. And the lack of variation in the way they play. So it, it always goes that way. They use set running patterns when they attack. Um, which the opposition are aware of and they, and they can block off. Sari's argument is it's not the tactics that are wrong. I can't change the tactics. Um, it's not Jorginho who's struggling. Um, uh, he's, you know, I think he gave a press conference before the Arsenal game saying that uh, there wasn't much room for Jorginho to improve as a player. Um, he's simply, he might be a little fatigued and his game, his game isn't as lucid as it as it as it could be at present, which is quite a nice phrase, um, if nothing else. But his his argument is the way he's set, setting the team up to play football is correct. He needs someone to finish for him, and Iguain's a good choice in that Iguain has played that system with him at Napoli, um, so he knows where he's expected to run. He knows where where the ball should be coming through from. He knows how Jorginho plays. So he should be the perfect fit and he should be motivated to, to score and prove himself. But if it fails with Iguain in the team, with the club um, accepting what essentially is the public embarrassment of, of moving Murata out just 16 months after making him the record signing, um, a move that I was just looking at some of the reports at the time, a, a move that was described in, the, in, in one English paper as an incredible transfer coup by Chelsea and the, the idea that they beat Manchester United to Murata and got him at a cheaper price than Lukaku um, doesn't look quite such an incredible transfer coup now. But if you, if you can't make it work under those circumstances, then I think that very much is the end for Maurizio Sarri at Chelsea. It's the main problem here, Ian, around Kante more than anything else. Do you do you take one of these guys who is, without doubt, one of the best defensive midfield players in the world? I think he's the best personally. 
and pull him out of his position and change his position to accommodate someone who's more in tune with your your style of play, your philosophy. A lot of people are now questioning that. What's your take on that decision by Sari? And surely if that is the philosophy going forward for Chelsea, they should just sell Kante rather than trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, I mean, look, Johnny, I think more important than anyone else, including myself or, or pundits and everything else, saying that, you know, or observing that Kante is, is not playing the right position. I mean, anybody who watches him play for Chelsea most games these days on the right side of a three-man midfield see it as a cry for help rather than as a game plan. And um, look, my argument will always be that um, when a coach makes a decision which his own players, his own team, don't believe in, then you're automatically at a disadvantage. Now, I know for a fact there are players in the Chelsea dressing room who do not rate Jorginho as that central midfielder and rate Kante much higher than him for uh, in that position. And therefore, you're sending out senior players um, who are absolutely essential to Chelsea's chances of success, thinking that they're at a disadvantage or worse, a man short, which in Kante's case at five foot six probably is a, a quite literal thing. So, um, yeah, that that's... That is definitely an issue for Sari and Chelsea. But Sari is a very, very stubborn, obstinate uh, personality who will not be told how to set his team up or what to do or how he should play certain players. He was given Jorginho as his welcome gift by the club because he was a player who was central to his philosophy at Napoli. Um, and also, you know, Jorginho was very, very stoutly praised in the first four or five months of the season for his work rate, for his passing accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. But he doesn't actually do that much in terms of providing goal threat. And as I said, anyone who's seen Chelsea go a little stale in the last month, um, it's because there's a lack of connection between the middle third and the final third. And that is not a problem for the three attacking players. That's a problem for the three midfield players. So Chelsea are stuck in a rut. And um, it looked like they were constantly banging their head against you know, the proverbial brick wall against Arsenal. Arsenal knew how they were going to play. Arsenal cut out the space. They closed the space down in the final third. It was, there were times when literally they were just nicking the ball um, because they knew uh, or they could predict um, what Chelsea were going to try and do in terms of moving the ball into the box. So Higuain will mix it up, that's for sure. Um, but as I said, for Sarri, he has got some difficult choices to make. Before we end this topic, I'll go back to um, Carlo Ancelotti's um, title-winning season when he absolutely insisted on playing uh, a diamond midfield. And then one very wet and very cold night at Portsmouth, of all places, um, he was persuaded by his players to go 4-3-3. And I think the result was something in the region of 5-1. My memory doesn't um, allow me to, to be completely accurate on that. But he played 4-3-3 for the rest of the season and they won the league. So there are, there's still time because that happened after um, the Christmas and New Year um, period uh, for Ancelotti. There's still time for Sarri to maybe change and obviously Higuain's addition will help. Uh, and maybe they, they, they might make top four. But, you know, it's looking less likely after results of the weekend and with Spurs winning in the 93rd minute plus 47 seconds up for them. 
Well, you don't have to go far to catch up with Jose Mourinho at the weekend. He was all over social media after an appearance on Qatar-based broadcaster BN Sports. He was talking about all things uh, to do with his career uh, and quite a lot of comments based around Manchester United, although he was quite clever in the way he made them. They weren't clearly directed uh, with Manchester United in mind, but if you could read between the lines, Duncan, there was certainly a lot said, wasn't there? Yeah, um, well, he made two appearances. He did uh, an analyst role for Arabic BN um, uh, for the Asian Cup game between Qatar and Saudi Arabia um, earlier in the week. And then on Saturday, he was on again on Arabic um, BN to do some Premier League analysis and then moved on to the English version to to talk about the the Chelsea-Arsenal game, um, but mainly do an extended interview um, about himself um, and what had happened. And um, I, I wrote my column for the, the Daily Record this weekend about some of the things he'd said on that initial appearance, um, talking about how uh, Manchester United had um, intervened quite rapidly um, the day after they sacked Mourinho when they saw um, one of his friends write an article for a, a Portuguese newspaper with some details of um, Ed Woodward's um, decision-making and some criticism of, of his role at Manchester United. Um, they, I'm told that Mourinho then received an email from Manchester United um, <coughs> warning, warning him that his, uh, his compensation package, um, which has a total cost to United of around £24 million, was dependent on adhering to the terms of a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and I think if you watch those clips uh, from the programme on Saturday, you'll see some references to that non-disclosure agreement um, and uh, the interviewers being trying to probe for details on specific issues that had happened at Manchester United during the last seasons um, and being told that he couldn't go there. But like you say, a lot of... Um, general discussion, if you like, um, of where things had gone wrong, how management was more difficult these days, why Liverpool and Manchester City were doing well in the Premier League. Um, a very common theme was the structure of the club, how the, the structure of the club was extremely important. At one point, Mourinho said, when... I start talking to clubs about my next job. The first thing I ask about won't be budget. It won't be the players um, I can sign. It will be what kind of structure can the club provide for me and what are their goals and objectives uh, framed around that structure. And I think the, the message from that is one he's made before, um, that Manchester United structure is sadly lacking for a modern club. In fact, um, when I interviewed him last, at the, the early part of last season, he, the, his first answer to a question was talking about how uh, Manchester United had stood still in time and stopped evolving um, post Sir Alex Ferguson and how they'd fallen behind the times in terms of um, the club structure, um, training ground facilities, administration, uh, scouting, uh, medical department. Etc. 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 I think what, he, what was more noticeable in what he said was 
the idea that to handle the modern generation of players um, is impossible for a manager, certainly a manager of his type, who has, as he described, likes to challenge and confront the players, to squeeze them, squeeze their personalities, um, to get better performances from them. Um, if you don't have a voice from the club backing the manager up. Um, he, he gave a very nice analogy um, about uh, fathers and children and saying um, the process of education of players, you as a manager, you cannot be alone. It's a bit like in the family. If it's only the father that educates, 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 the son falls in love with the mother and hates the father. And then the mother is the sweet one and the father is the one that the kid does not want to see. Um, so he's, he's talking there very much about an issue that confronted him at United and he is used to explain why he had difficulties there, which is players not having the personality um, to, to deal with criticism and confrontation. He talked about how players these days tire of having the manager if it's only the manager disciplining them and asking them to do things for, for the, the sake of the team, then they get frustrated with the manager and they stop listening. Um, and his argument is you need a voice in the club to support the manager, to intervene, to be, to be a, a conduit. Um, if the, if um, discipline needs to be applied, it shouldn't always be the guy who's in charge of the tactical side the sporting side, but uh, a person who holds control of the contracts at the club who can say, this uh, has to change, you have to alter your behaviour here. Um, the club supports the coach in his decision-making. Um, don't question uh, whether the club is behind the coach or not. Um, and I wonder how much reflection there's been there. Um, it kind of surprises me to hear Mourinho talking about needing a, a director of football, a sports director, because it's a position he, he hasn't wanted at his previous clubs and, and has often come into conflict with. He, he did propose one um, when Manchester United start to look at, at, at bringing a sports director in. They have that plan for the, to, to help their new manager with a sports director. He was ready to do that, but he wanted his own man. And he wanted a guy he trusted to come in alongside him and the club weren't interested in doing that. Um, but this is a, that's a significant change in itself in Mourinho as a, as a coach. And I think that process of uh, things going wrong at Chelsea and then a, a similar process of things going wrong at Manchester United, his conclusion seems to be um, it's not really his method that's an issue. It's the support around him that's required to allow him to continue doing what he's always done with the players, what he's always done on the field of play. I think this is a fascinating subject, um, not only um, because Jose Mourinho has, for the first time in my recollection of, of uh, knowing him since around 2003, admitted that he needs some external help in dealing mm. with players, but also the sort of wider context of, of, of society and football players now. And I go back to um, Sir Alex Ferguson 
and every one of his players um, who you know the, the, the class in '92, etc., etc., refer to him affectionately and genuinely as a father figure. You know, they, they still call him Gaffer, which grates on some people. Uh, even Solskjaer now still calls him the Gaffer, and he's been criticised for that. But that's because they had absolute and unequivocal respect for him as an authority figure. What Mourinho's come up against, I believe, uh, in Chelsea in his second spell, but more significantly in Manchester United, is a group of younger, not quite millennials, all of them, but almost players, whose um, upbringing and education, to use his own word, as well as discipline, is their, their, their idea of these things, these concepts, and, and indeed the practicalities of them is very different to the generation of players before who he's dealt with very successfully in his first spell at, uh, in his spell at Porto and then at Chelsea in his first time there and then at Inter Milan and then to a lesser degree at Real Madrid where there were some very, very strong characters who disagreed with him, but he still got gained success. And so I think what we're seeing is, you know, when he talks about discipline and needing a second voice, you know, a, a, an authoritative voice from the club to back him up. Effectively, what he's saying is that these players don't listen. Um, these younger players don't listen just to the manager anymore. They listen to their agents, they listen to their parents. And bear in mind here, and again, this is what I'm talking about in terms of the wider terms of society, um, there are a lot of very, very um, talented, very, very um, well-paid young players in the Premier League who <clears throat> openly talk about being um, the children of broken marriages where perhaps their mum or there's a single parent with their mum or their father and therefore again the idea that Mourinho said you know if you're the only one who educates 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 then that goes against their own upbringing because they were maybe brought up in a single parent family and so there was only one voice etc etc and you know, it's one of the things I hear all the time uh, from uh, managers of Premier League clubs or chief executives and, and certainly coaches is that a lot of the kids they have in academy now, because they're well paid, because they're um, very well looked after, etc., etc., then, you know, they, there's a sense of entitlement about them, which means that they don't accept criticism very well. And that makes it difficult for anyone in a position of authority to actually criticise and therefore make that person a better player by constructively or otherwise criticising them about their performance. So, it's, as I said, it's fascinating. And we could probably talk about this for about three hours, and we probably will at some point. Yeah. But I, I do think that, that Mourinho's got a very, very good point uh, in terms of his analysis, own self-analysis. And you've got to give him credit, his own self-criticism and how he might have done things better or how he might have been helped better. <laughs> Well, as part of the fact that we're now three episodes per week here at the Transfer Window, we're moving on to one of our new segments, the Heroes and Villains segment. Now, normally, of course, we do the quickfire round, the legendary quickfire round, and that has been moved to Friday. So don't worry, it's still here and it'll be coming to you on Friday. But anyway, Heroes and Villains, what we're going to do is discuss the weekend's action and who's been the biggest hero and the biggest villain from those games. We're going to start with you, Duncan. Who was your hero of the weekend? We're going to start with you, Ian. Who was the hero of the weekend? Uh, listen, regular listeners, you know me well. Um, my hero has got to be Jimmy Milner, because uh, he always is. Um, and you'll obviously find it weird because he got sent off. 
but he's my hero because he was sent off by his former school teacher, John Moss, who at the age of 33, as Milner is, you don't really expect to be coming against your old school teacher in a professional Premier League football match and getting two yellow cards for the second time only in his career. He's been sent off against Crystal Palace and the first time he was sent off was against Crystal Palace too. So I reckon that uh, James Milner deserves the hero uh, of the weekend for exactly those reasons and um, I'm pretty sure that he will not look forward to coming against Crystal Palace again anytime soon. Listeners will be glad to know that we are now officially banning Ian from using James Milner as the hero going (laughs) forward. Had his one opportunity, and also Big Sam is banned from his villain segments. I've started no. my, my own James Milner Hero podcast, everyone, don't worry. <laughs> Duncan, who's your villain of the weekend? Well, I'm tempted to say John Moss, because I, I think uh, Jimmy Milner should have got a straight red for oh, at least one of those tackles. But, but he was playing at Anfield, so, I mean... Uh, Former teacher or not, it's very difficult to give a, a Liverpool player a straight red at, uh, on the hallowed turf. Um, I shall choose as my villain of the weekend uh, a, a pantomime villain, Maurizio Sarri, um, who uh, it, I think is, re- is resorting to type, actually. Um, he, If you find out what he was like at Napoli, he was a, a kind of difficult, cantankerous, um, some <laughs> very... Uh, dangerous comments in press conferences that got him into trouble. Um, he came into Chelsea and uh, and one of the initial comments was just how likeable he was and how much the players were enjoying training for him and the atmosphere at the training ground and how he'd, he'd uh, let them have ketchup again and ice cream and uh, taking them to the fairground and Gianfranco Zola. <laughs> Is that true? Did you the fairground? I might have been exaggerating on the last one. Maybe need- <laughs> Um, maybe maybe he needs to take them to the fairground now to sort things out. But um, Gianfranco's um, advice to uh, to get the players on his side it seems to have fallen to the wayside. And as we were discussing earlier, he's now gone uh, full tempo, uh, Jimmy Milner um, uh, challenge into into the most painful area of the body on his entire squad. By well, apart from Jorginho. Um, by saying that they are, they basically don't want to play football, and, and the only reason Chelsea aren't doing very well at the moment is because the players aren't trying very hard. Um, so I think he is the villain of the week in the Premier League and the villain of the week for Chelsea fans as well. So with that, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. But fear not, we are going to be back on Wednesday, as we've already said, to fulfil all your podcasting needs. That's right, three podcasts a week from now on, Monday. Wednesday and Friday. Don't forget to get your questions in to at Transfer Podcast and on Wednesday we will answer the best ones for you. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and most importantly our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until next time, thanks for listening.